Hi everyone, thank you so much for listening to Learning Out Loud. Today we have Elizabeth Blankenship. Elizabeth is a fashion designer that went to FIT and later got her MBA from Darden, University of Virginia's business school. Here she was involved in sustainable fashion startups, winning the Catherine Carr Award for Entrepreneurial Excellence and first place in the University of Virginia Entrepreneurship Cup. She was also listed in the 2022 Most Disruptive MBA Startups. She was a founding member of the KPI Club, which was created for women founders to keep each other accountable and key performance indicators, which I am now a part of at UVA. Elizabeth now works as a venture capital fellow at Climate Tech Circle Fund and is an entrepreneur in residence for Cav Angels, which is a group that invests in UVA alumni. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Um, so I guess to start out, we'd love to hear, like, I know that you went to FIT, so how you got from there to then um, going for an MBA, was that always the plan? Um, if you could talk about that. Yeah, business school was not the plan at all. Nobody was more surprised that I was going to business school than I was. So I had always been an artist. I was in like painting classes after school every day from like kindergarten on. And um, in my, I think sophomore or junior year of high school, I wanted to try out some different art forms. So I signed up for summer classes at FIT and took fashion art and sewing and fell in love. Um, I wasn't planning on being an artist, but then I found fashion design and I just felt like an instant fit. So I went to FIT for my bachelor's and studied fashion design. Um, I did a specialization in my senior year in children's wear, um, just because I found it interesting. Um, and that led me to wanting to complement my bachelor's degree with a master's in a more sort of like creative uh, version of fashion design. So the good thing about FIT is like you could probably get from the name is it was like very technical. So it was really, um, it was really like uh, forward on the uh, engineering side of garment making. So pattern making, draping, um, sewing, and you had to sew and make everything 100% yourself. So like how you would say like at UVA, you can't have help on an essay, like you couldn't have help making anything. And we we're making probably like four garments per week minimum. And so it was really heavy on the technical side and less about the creative. So then I complemented that with a graduate degree from Central St. Martin's in London, which was like 100% creative because you could pay to have professionals make your garments. So um, that was a really interesting mix, doing those two degrees back to back um, and getting to know fashion in New York and in LA. I mean, not LA, sorry, London. Um, and so then I went into my career. I um, wanted to work at this brand called Pearl and Schooler, which is based in New York, specifically because this sounds silly, but they had done one of the Target collaborations when I was in high school. And you know how like Target has like um, emerging designers do the designer collaborations. I'd never heard of the brand and I loved it. So that was my target. So I moved back from London and worked at Proenza and I started as a product development assistant and moved into eventually being the design and development manager overseeing um, all of the product development and production of the things that I was designing. And I loved my career. I loved the team at Proenza. I still um, 
you know, I'm really close with the whole team. I was there for seven years, which is a really long time. Um, and I could have stayed there my whole life. So then the way that I ended up at business school was interesting. It's like, I'm sure you've heard this from other people that when the pandemic happened, like it kind of flipped everything upside down, but a lot, um, you know, careers or plans were flipped upside down. And I had been working on a sustainable capsule at Prolenza called Core Collection. I was really interested in being able to make sustainability more part of my career. Um, and so I had been like pursuing being able to take sustainability classes alongside working at Prolenza um, at FIT. And then, um, and Prolenza supported me in that and was letting me work on sustainable products. But then when the pandemic happened, like everything shut down and my classes at, at FIT weren't gonna um, be held. And so I kind of did a reassessment and realized that like the aspect of being able to create sustainable products and work in a sustainable company was like more important to me. And um, all of a sudden there was just this opportunity in front of me that I couldn't say no to. So my brother, my oldest brother called me and was like, hey, a bunch of the business schools dropped their GMAT requirement because the testing centers closed down. You could go to business school without taking the GMAT if you if you apply right now. And when he called, I was like, why would I go to business school? And then I started looking into a couple of the programs that had dropped the GMAT requirement and felt like an instant fit with Darden the same way I had felt when I went to FIT in high school. And um, they have the Batten Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And um, I made it very clear that they were also putting a lot of, um, you know, effort and capital behind supporting female founders. And I thought if I'm going to make a go at creating my own sustainable company, like I wouldn't have a better place to do it and de-risk and have that support than going to Darden. So that's how that's how I ended up there. So what's the company that you're working on now? Is that what you were working on when you were in Darden or is it something different now? I'm doing something different now, but I can tell you about the company that I built during Darden. Um, it was originally called Cotone, C-O-T-O-N, um, but last summer I changed the name to Buy Illy. Um, I would say like the first, thing I would tell you before you name a company is to Google it and Google like everything around it to see what comes up because I made a mistake and uh, Catone is a type of dog. It's called a Catone de Soulier. It looks like a little cotton ball because that's Catone is just cotton in French. Um, but that was that company was um, built directly based on my experiences in design which is that um, every designer as part of your product development and production process has massive amounts of textile waste. And I knew that because I could see it with my eyes. I just didn't realize the, the scale of it until I started researching. And it's, um, it, it's to the scale, it's like almost hard to imagine. But if you can picture one dump truck full of fabric going to the landfill every single second, that's how much fabric is wasted every day of every year. It's just massive. And so that's what I built the company to tackle. So I like leveraged all of my friends and contacts across luxury brands in Europe and New York. And I took um, the textiles leftover 
um, from the design process and then produced new clothing and accessories on demand in a factory in New York's garment district. So um, there's a female founded factory on 38th Street that I had been working with for years. And um, she was really interested in figuring out how to make her um, factory sustainable as well. So we did a lot of experimentation over, I would say the first like six to nine months of my MBA was mostly figuring out how to how to produce. Um, I didn't have a problem getting the fabric. I had a problem figuring out how to produce at zero waste. So we basically reverse engineered a production line at her factory and found a really awesome partner called Fab Scraps. They're a nonprofit textile recycler founded by two women based out of Brooklyn. They're at the um, Brooklyn Army Terminal and they upcycle fabric scraps into things like the um, insulation in car trunks as well as mattress stuffing and like insulation in building sites, as well as recycling things that are uh, fibers which can be recycled. So um, the first, I would say nine months-ish was spent um, setting up the processes. And then I launched the first collection in May of 2021, which was the end of my first year of business school. And um, I, I launched everything in collection drops because as I said, it was, um, it was made on demand. The way we would do it is we would launch a collection once a quarter. And once we listed it for sale, we would accept all of the orders um, one by one and produce everything within two weeks of your order. So it wasn't exactly like a pre-sale. Um, we kind of had this new hybrid model and we were able to deliver stuff to you within two weeks, which was amazing. And I ran that company until this past January of 2023. So I went full-time on it when I graduated my MBA last May, 2022, and um, tried to scale and met some obstacles, which were now predictable, but at the time didn't realize, which is that, um, you know, the economic headwinds were not in, you know, my favor and consumer spending dropped. And at the same time, our labor prices went up. And um, so we just needed to take a pause. Gotcha. Yeah, wow, that's that's a very interesting kind of winding road to to get to where you are today. Um, so could you talk a little bit about like when you're facing these uh, different challenges in terms of trying to find a zero waste way to produce the garments, trying to navigate different macroeconomic environments? Are you using more of the MBA line of thinking or using the FIT line of thinking or is it a combination of the both? Yeah, it's an interesting question, um, which I haven't maybe thought about before. I would say it's it's usually always intuition backed by like as much data that you can acquire, which before getting my MBA, it would have just been pure intuition. And so that would have been the creative training because, you know, when you're when you learn a creative trade, you learn how to harness your intuition and then channel it into um, you know, uh, and funnel it into like data-driven decisions, but the MBA really balanced that and complemented it. And, um, I would say like really the most important thing to be honest is like having a support system that helps you be able to handle all of the massive amounts of decisions that you have to make every day. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, so 
Uh, when you're thinking about, you know, starting the business, could you talk a little bit about how you use the competitions at UVA to kind of catalyze that process and, you know, get you off the ground? Oh, yeah, I would not. I don't know if I would have actually started the company if I hadn't had the competitions. The competitions were everything because it created a deadline and it created deliverables. So when you're at the very beginning of entrepreneurship, it's really easy to like think about what to do and kind of like labor over your first decisions. And so the competitions were really key. So the first thing that happened was that there was an EVC pitch competition. So the EVC is the Entrepreneurship and Venture Capital Club at Darden. And there were calls for pitch submissions at like the end of August. So it's the very, very beginning of school. And then the pitch competition was like mid-September. And um, because it was the pandemic, I still lived in New York. I didn't move um, to go in person until later that fall. So I was still also working part-time at Prolenza since I lived in New York. So I'll never forget, like, I think I stayed up until like 5 a.m. the night before it was due to submit it because it was the first time I had to articulate what the business plan actually was. Like I knew it from the design angle, but having to articulate what the business plan was, was so helpful. And then um, the pitch competition was held um, around like mid-September. And um, it was really interesting because this wasn't done on purpose, but like the top five people who were chosen to pitch were all women. And um, four of the five of us were first year students. We had just started. And um, then the top three, I think I got third in that. And the top three, we were all incoming first years and we were all motivated to keep working on our businesses after the excitement and success of the EVC pitch competition. So um, we can talk about this in a little bit, but that's how we formed the KPI club, which was for female founders, was because um, we had all been in that pitch competition together and then had as our goal to apply for the ECUP concept competition which was in October and then discovery in January or February um so that's how we that that's how we maintained our momentum got it um wait, yeah. yeah I was just gonna ask a, a quick follow-up on that which is that so when you were doing the EVC the the concept was just uh like a design uh it was just a a design concept at that point right there wasn't anything that um was made at that point so it was kind of an easy way to get get started is what you're saying right yeah exactly because um this is gonna make me sound um crazy to anyone who like goes does a normal degree at a normal college but like i did not own powerpoint on my computer i did not have any of microsoft because my whole life was through adobe illustrator photoshop all of that like i didn't have word documents on my computer and so doing the pitch competition having to make a pitch deck was like being able to formulate like everything about the company, like validating why I had this idea. So looking for McKinsey studies to give me statistics, learning how to make a pie chart on PowerPoint when you're like 28 is embarrassing, but you, you know, never too late to learn, I guess. Um, yeah. So that, that was the, um, that was the best thing to come out of the EBC pitch competition. And then the ECUP concept was having to look for data first to validate all of my intuition about what would make the company successful. So then how did you use the money that you won for your company? 
So that seeded all the product development. So I won, I had amassed like maybe five or $6,000 by February. And I had already been in communication with the factory the whole time because I was like, if I'll find, I'll find capital one way or another. And it just depends on when. And so um, by the time we got the money in February, we were like ready to go. I had already solidified all the designs and the production line with them by that February. So we were actually able to produce and um, photograph and launch the full website and the full clothing collection by May 11th of 2021. So it was a really quick turnaround. Um, so then you mentioned starting KPI. How did that all work? Yeah, I mean, really the credit um, is due to Damon DeVito. He was our professor. He just passed away this past February, which is a huge loss for for everyone, but especially UVA entrepreneurship. So I think because we were brand new and we were all new to entrepreneurship, we came from every different background you could imagine, but no entrepreneurship, uh, no entrepreneurial backgrounds. Um, we didn't know how important KPI was going to be. We were like, oh, we want to build companies. So we'll build the companies, you know, without knowing that we were going to face, you know, a million obstacles and um, want to give up. So Damon really championed the idea of creating accountability with each other. It's really difficult to, it's really difficult to um, work on a, a startup when you're doing something else. And it's really difficult to do it, especially your first year at Darden, because it is the case method. It's very intensive. The first four months are the most intense. And um, he knew that he knew that if we hadn't created like an infrastructure of support, we might not make it through. And so um, it was all the ladies that were in the EVC pitch competition that banded together. And then we were able to expand from there, but that was like the perfect way to start. And we created bi-weekly meetings where we met up and we would identify um, each meeting. We would identify a big rock, which was the thing that you needed to scale and accomplish across the next two weeks. And then we would list KPIs, key performance indicators to judge in the next meeting if we had like accomplished our big rock. And that was a really, um, that was a really helpful way of thinking about um, working on your venture because it created um, consecutive two week sprints. So one week could be focused on getting customers on the wait list. And my KPI would be like, I want a hundred new customers on the wait list. And, or the next week it'd be like, I want to um, survey potential customers and solidify the lot, the first three designs. And so you created this sprint system where you were always working on something. And if it didn't happen by the end of the two weeks, you moved on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have been in it, or I was in it last semester, Brielle. I don't know if you know Brielle at all. Yeah, yeah. She knew Damon as well. Um, something that's been helpful about it has been like once someone says their goal for the two weeks or something, everyone else chimes in and they say like, if they know someone that could help or if they themselves, mm -hmm. can help. do you have any examples of either through KPI or just anything else that you've just asked someone to help or that it's some random connection that someone has like really helped you with some, do you know what I'm getting at there? Yeah, absolutely. I have one for me. And then I have a really powerful one about my friend Gretchen Pace, who's the founder of Goose and Willow, which I'll, I'll say next. Mine was really simple, which was at the beginning, 
I had like no sales experience and um, I didn't even know where to start. And Megan Nash, which was another founding member of KPI, came from a sales background. She was working on her company, Raina, which was a, um, a tremor, a, a female pubic hair tremor. And um, she basically went in, set up my whole process while we were in the meeting and gave me a list of to-dos. And I mean, that would have taken me two weeks to, of Googling around, figuring out how to even approach starting customer outreach. And so that's like, that's just an easy example because that would happen every time. And then for Gretchen, this one's fun because I think it shows the camaraderie and like the support that we really built where like we weren't, you would think we're competing against each other because we were all, you know, actually competing against each other in all of the e-cups and stuff. But we had like fostered an environment of just like support. And so Gretchen had, um, Gretchen had joined KPI in the fall of 2020 or maybe the spring of 2021 with a different idea and then pivoted to the company that she still works on now, Goose and Willow, which is a home decor company that features veteran artwork. She was a 10-year veteran of the U.S. Army. And um, she, she kept saying she wanted to reach out to stores within Charlottesville to carry her products. And so two weeks in a row, she came saying that that was her big rock. And the second time she said it, we all were just sitting there silent. And we were like, what did you do? Did you go to a store? And she's like, no, like, I don't know what to say. Like, I don't know what to do. And another, another girl in the KPI club, um, I think it was Jing, was like, we're going right now. I'm going with you. We're walking in. I'll hold your hand if you want, but we're going right now. And they went into a store that's at Barracks Road. She took her product with her and she got a meeting with the manager and she got carried in the store. Her product is still carried there. And that was just like the best, that was the best example of like what, what KPI is because she, she needed the support and she got it immediately. That's awesome though. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you've talked a lot about how the community and the deadlines of Darden were helpful in kind of getting off the ground. And the community and like the self-imposed deadlines of KPI were important. So how are you able to foster that now that you're on your own with your own business and for your, your employees and everything like that? Yeah, that was that was so hard to leave Darden and lose that. I didn't realize really how key it was until it was quote unquote gone. And so last summer when I graduated, I had a collection that came out like June 15th. So um Oh, last year ago today. And, um, and that it didn't, it, it didn't go well for a multitude of reasons. The website had been delayed. Um, there was developer issues and, um, some of our shipments had been delayed and a couple of different things went wrong. And I was just like devastated because I felt all of a sudden, like, wait, I have a company and I'm alone. And I remember Damon texted me and was like, how's it going? And I was like, not good. And he was like, well, then we need to have a KPI meeting. And I was like, well, like we graduated, like KPI is over. He's like, no, it's not. Like, it's only over if you guys say it is. And so he had, he reminded me and I reached back out to every girl that had been in KPI and we um, were able to start what we call KPI plus, which is just for the alumni. And um, when, as soon as I met with them again, I was like reminded, like I can create this infrastructure for me and the people that are working with me where 
I, you know, I know this works. We work on two week sprints. We focus on something. We have like KPIs every day, which are different. And, um, you know, I had all this structure in place of to-do lists and who had what task and whatever, but I had lost the structure of focusing on the big rock. And that really, truly affected me. So then by, I would say by August, it was like fully back in place and, and back on track. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and how do you think that the the two week in particular, like that time frame, I guess it's enough time to get a lot done, but what happens if you aren't able to get exactly what you want it done in those two weeks? What's kind of the process of assessment at the end of those two weeks and when you're setting a new goal? Yeah, it could be a week, I guess. The two week was, the two week we settled on as being helpful because you then had more than five days. And like when you're, working with a bunch of different stakeholders across different continents. Like I work in Europe and the U S if you're working with um, people with different priorities, like, you know, you're not their number one priority. You do need to give yourself a little bit of time. And I think um, the goal was always to finish before the two weeks. Right. But like you had, you sort of had, you gave yourself enough of a deadline, but you gave yourself enough space to accomplish what you needed to accomplish. And like, all that said, like, there's no way that we all accomplished our big rocks every two weeks. So then what, um, sort of like what we established as, as helpful is that you can, you can continue working on it, of course, but you need to identify what stopped you from being able to accomplish it in those two weeks. And then that's your focus for the next two weeks. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I guess if you don't mind, then could you talk a little bit about what you're working on now at the moment? Yes. Um, I'm doing a couple of things that I'm really excited by. So I was recently named the first ever entrepreneur in residence at Cav Angels. And that is so exciting because I think Cav is so pivotal to the UVA entrepreneurial ecosystem. So um, I guess I'll do a brief overview of what CAV is. So um, CAV Angels is a large angel network which serves and invests in UVA-founded startups. So student startups, alumni startups, parent, professor, um, just the UVA community. And I got involved in CAV actually last May when I graduated. So I won the eCup launch in at the end of April. And then I won the Kathy Carr Award for Entrepreneurial Excellence in May. And so Rich Dimer, the um, co-chair of CAV, invited me to just have an educational membership. So CAV has three different types of memberships, investing member, where obviously you're the investor, educational membership, which is for people who are interested in sort of VC and angel investing and, and or startups and just wanted like have kind of like a passenger seat view and then student memberships which I recommend to literally every student at UVA because you get the educational membership benefits you get to see you get to see company pitches and how questions that investors ask so he offered me the educational membership so that um, when I was going into my fundraise of an angel round I would be able to get sort of like an inside view and I did that up until this January, I would just go to a weekly meeting and that's kind of my only participation. And then in January, when I decided to take a break from my startup, I kind of dug into CAV and I volunteered to work on a diligence report and um, 
through that diligence report, like it was not, I did not obviously anticipate this, but kind of every other person that was writing it kind of backed out. So I ended up doing almost the entire report alone and I loved it. It's, it was so similar to being a founder in the sense that like you were on the founder's team having to write sort of like a 10 page memo of what's the problem space, what's the solution, who's the customer. It was almost like researching, coming up with another startup and then presenting it to the um, investment members each week. And um, so from there, I got involved and ended up leading the next diligence report and being able to be the like main communicator between the founders and CAV. And um, I just, you know, I enjoyed it. And I think they enjoyed having me. So Rich created this position and entrepreneur in residence is a position which exists within venture capital. It's more rare within angel groups. But what I'll say about Cav Angels is it doesn't really operate like an angel group. It really is sort of VC um, size and in seriousness. So their minimum tech size for a group deal is 250K. And then their largest check last year was 1.2 million. So it's really large. And um, they they take it um, very seriously, like very um, full rounded diligence reports are written and um the investing members are able to communicate multiple rounds of questions with the founders. It really does operate like a VC. So the entrepreneurship and residence position is um, focused on three main things. So the first thing I do is founder support. So that's supporting the founders in the pipeline as they prepare to pitch, as well as as they're going through the investment um, committee decisions and afterwards as they become a portfolio company. And then the second is diligence reporting. So I am still overseeing all of the diligence reporting that's going on. Um, we have like four going right now. There's a lot going on. And then um, third and last is operational support. So um, the operations of CAB itself as, as a company, which is really, really fascinating. I went to my first executive committee meeting last week, which um, getting to be able to see sort of like how a fund operates is really, really interesting. Do you find that work more interesting, like being being a support for other companies versus being your own founder? I, I love them both. I it's This is definitely right for me right now. And I think that th there is probably a future in which I start another company. I started working on another one in March and April as I was working with Cav. And um, I'll never stop doing that. I think now that I've like had a taste of starting your own company, but what I love about working in VC is that you're basically doing that. You're just being able to support more ventures and more founders. And every venture that we see excites me. And so I love get, being able to like support them in, in their work. Do you see a lot of common threads between the ventures that you're seeing? Because um, I was a TA. I don't know if you know Chip Ransler at all. Yeah, he was my um, Hot Topics and Marketing professor. Um, so when I was his TA last semester and I was like looking at the classes, um, ideas for ventures and just problems that they had, I was seeing so many common threads between like the class and it was just really interesting to see. So I was wondering if you see that at all. Yeah, there are, there are some that overlap, you know, how like sometimes a movie will come out and like the exact same movie comes out from a different studio in the same year. Like that does happen. 
I would say it's more rare because to get to the stage where you're ready for investment, you have had to go through so much already. Like every, like you have to have validation and revenue. And so I think if you're too similar to another company, you probably aren't at that stage. The thing that is so interesting about CAV is that their investments are industry and sector agnostic. The common thread is UVA. So you see everything from like biomedical med device to um, platforms, marketplaces, um, consumer goods, beverages, like you really see everything. So it's been a really good crash course for me because it's like, how do you evaluate a startup when you have literally no idea of the technology in the market? You have to do all of the research from scratch. And so that I think has kept me like super engaged and super interested. So do you see any other industries now that you've seen so many that you would be interested in starting a startup besides fashion? Yes, I'm like very interested in fintech. So the idea that I've been working on since March is within fintech. Um, uh, Rachel Edwards, who's another KPI member who also had worked in fashion, now works in finance. And so we like joke that KPI was a fashion to finance pipeline. Um, and I'm also really interested in like the entire supply chain. So I was able to touch the supply chain as a designer. I worked directly with the factories. And then um, I did a double major or a double concentration at Darden in entrepreneurship and then something called innovation for sustainability, which sits within the operations department and is like a supply chain um, concentration. And so that that's like a passion area of mine that I don't think would ever go away. And like, if I could innovate something in that space, I definitely would. Yeah. And to just going back to, to Cab Angels for a second, are there any common themes that you see among, especially the student founders that they have certain characteristics or certain traits that make them effective as entrepreneurs? I would say that the trait that makes them the most effective is leaning in and building something that's within their area of expertise. So like, you know, what's your expertise? What's your passion? Like, what's your zone of genius? It could be, it's different for every person, but the common trait that's making them successful is that like they have ownership over that subject matter. And so like we see something within like the music space, we see something within medical device, we see like a, um, I don't know, like a biopharma. If that's your zone of genius, then like you're way more likely to be successful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then in terms of uh, of team, teams of founders, how much overlap would you say there is in terms of skill set or perspective or background? Is it generally more diverse or most of the same kind of ideas? Yeah, so, well, so a lot of the startups that we've seen recently are older, more experienced founders because of the current market conditions and the way that venture is investing right now, the bar is a lot higher. So like there was a lot of venture investment in 2020, 2021, and then into like maybe halfway through 2022. And then now investors are way more risk averse and are investing less frequently. And that's created an interesting opportunity for CAV actually, because some ventures that were even doing their series A with like Silicon Valley based VC firms are coming to CAV um, because they have 
they have room in their rounds that normally would be filled by VCs. And so we are seeing like more um, professional teams that have like subject matter experts that have a whole track record of doing like the CFO position or the COO position. So that's been really interesting. But speaking specifically about younger ventures, um, there is, especially a lot of the startups that were founded when you're in college, undergrad, sometimes Darden, but mostly if you're in undergrad or um, like medical school, your training and your expertise are very, like very much overlap. But if you create clear boundaries of who does what role, like this person is the CEO and this person is the COO and they they do different things and um, create clear boundaries, then then that's like a great, I don't, like I would trust that as a team and want to invest in that team. It's really difficult for teams that have similar backgrounds and do not create super distinct roles because then you're you're leading by committee instead of you know leading by leader. I think that's a really good point about the roles, especially. Do you think that um, people or teams naturally fall into those roles or do you think that it's better like from the start to kind of uh, say, this person's the CEO, this person's the COO? From the start. If you don't do it from the start, it gets messy and um, there's no better way to like hurt someone's feelings or like hurt a friendship than to have to have like a hard conversation later. I would say like, especially I I had a co-founder, my sister-in-law who was at a different business school and um, we, we were advised to do this from the very beginning, split our equity have an entire conversation where we talk about exit strategy, how would we be happy with different outcomes and what we would want to do. And if you level set at the beginning, then each person knows what to expect and um, how to interact with all the different stakeholders that you deal with every single day. I would say from like day one, I would recommend it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah so... With uh, with Bailey right now, what's going on now that you've kind of taken uh, more of a role in, in Cav Angels? How did, what was your role to start with in that company? And then how does that relate to what's going on with it now? Yes. So um, Bailey was designed originally direct to be direct to consumer for a multitude of reasons. One, it was still the pandemic for the first year and a half of the company. Um, and Two, it's obviously easier to start direct to consumer than, um, you know, sort of building out like the B2B partnerships and wholesale, um, especially because of the business model where we were producing on demand. There isn't really a way to produce something on demand, but then also sell it at a department store. But it became clear through the operations of the company that to be able to scale and to be able to actually solve the problem we were trying to solve, which is textile waste, we needed to do it at such a larger scale with more support. So I started probably like last August of 2022, having conversations with really large brands and manufacturers. And the conversations range depending on the brand to like doing a partnership where we produce like a in collaboration to them sort of licensing out our manufacturing process to something in between and um I I you know I started that 
too late. Like I, I thought that I, I thought that I was gonna have more time to pivot and due to sort of the, you know, market conditions, um, there isn't, I guess I should say this first there, there isn't like very much margin in fashion. Like if you know anything about like maybe like supermarket margins and how thin those are, that's how fashion is as well. Um, fashion does not make like a ton of money actually. Um, and so when we started having conversations about these partnerships with brands, it wasn't in their budget. And so we were kind of being pulled like next year, next year, next year. And so um, while I'm sort of pursuing other things, Biley is completely on hold. It still exists as an entity and it still has, um, you know, all of the things in place where we could reactivate it tomorrow. But it, I would consider it just like in a holding pattern until we're able to start executing on like the B2B partnerships. Gotcha. And um, what was the process like getting in front of those large manufacturers and then maintaining that relationship over a few months period where maybe there wasn't any active investment going on or active partnership, but there's still the potential for that to happen in the future? Yeah, I would say like overall, the best um, framework for me working on my venture has been effectual entrepreneurship, which was conceptualized by Sarah, Sarah Zvostri. She's a professor at Darwin, but she's like a, a leading thought leader. She's like number one thought leader in entrepreneurship. Um, she has a couple different books, but effectuation is the one that I would recommend. And like, I think her website's effectuation.org. Um, she has, she has boiled entrepreneurship down to um, like five-ish principles. One of them is called Crazy Quilt. So Crazy Quilt is like patching together your network and getting people on board to being your co-creators. So like getting your partners or the people you're working with um, aligned with your mission and goals, that's the Crazy Quilt principle. So like my manufacturer in New York, like I, I, we built the production line alongside each other and I got her on board with the mission. She wanted to be able to produce sustainably. And that's the only way I was able to do it. Cause she wasn't making, she was barely making any money off of me. We had really small margins, but it was really like aligning our goals and missions. And then like further to crazy quilt is like, you, you can't be afraid to leverage like every connection you have across your network and just make an ask like ask to meet with them ask to get coffee like I found someone on LinkedIn who was like a connection of a connection and reached out and was able to have a meeting with like one of the largest retailers in the world like I think leaning on leaning into your network and and being open to asking people to meet with you was like the, the only way that I was able to make that happen yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we've we've discussed the principles of effectuation in in Chips class, so that definitely resonates. Nice. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I think the the asking thing is super important, and people just really do not like. We've talked about that a lot. Like, people just do not realize the power of simply asking people, and then they're too scared to do it, and then just never do. And like, so much could come yeah. out of asking someone for help with something. So. Yeah, it's like that was the best advice that I got at the beginning from Damon DeVito was um, like August of 2020. I had done nothing. He was like, have you asked a brand for their leftover fabric yet? 
And I was like, no, like I can't approach like Louis Vuitton. I'm nobody. I don't have a company. It doesn't have a name. Like I have nothing. And he's like, if they say no, like your company is dead. So like you have to ask the hardest question first, because if the answer is no, there's no point in working on the company. And so he like, he coached me through a conversation on like a Tuesday afternoon. And he was like, we're going to meet again on Thursday and you can't come to the meeting unless you called them. And so he forced my hand because I was uncomfortable. I was like embarrassed. I like, you know, you never feel prepared and you'll, you can live your whole life just like not feeling prepared enough. And, um, there was no harm in asking. And then they said, yes. And then I was, you know, I had a green light. Yeah. I feel like also, as soon as you get that first person or first company or whatever to say, yes, that gives you the proof that it could work. And obviously not every single person or whatever is going to say yes. But once you get that first one, it really shows that you could keep on asking people. Yeah. hundred percent. Do not expect everyone to say yes, but don't let that deter you from asking another person. Yeah, I mean the answer is no until you ask, and then it's different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, was there anything else that we wanted to ask before before we wrapped up, or anything else that you wanted to say, Elizabeth? Um, you know, I I guess I could say something about like when your venture fails, because I would call my venture like a small failure, and. I would just say like when I thought about it failing, like when it was in late in the fall and I was like, you know, maybe I have two months left. I was like so afraid of being, of being a failure. And what I'll say now is like that small fail was like the best thing that could have happened to me. I learned more from that. I think than if I was just still running quietly today and that experience, like it made me like sort of reassess what I was working on and like why I was doing it. And it led me to like what I'm doing now and um, where I'm, so, I'm like so happy and I feel like it's such a natural fit. But if I, I don't know, if I had just continued on to avoid failing, I like, I, I, I know, I know I would not be as happy today. I would just say like embrace, embrace the failure. That's awesome. That's definitely a common theme that we've been hearing from many different people. The when they fail something, it just leads to the next good thing and pivoting. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We appreciate that insight and everything, everything else today. So uh thank you very much. And yes, thank you. Thank yeah. You. All right. So